Well, I'd like to begin this Thanksgiving sermon by reading to you from a historical document, a proclamation from one national leader, and then I want to reference and quote from two other historical documents from two other national leaders from the Bible on the same subject, the subject of Thanksgiving, or in one case, the lack thereof. After that, I want to talk briefly about the heart of gratitude, which is the title of this sermon. And then I want to lead you in an exercise that follows the example of one of these national leaders. So that's my plan for the day. My hope is that we will see how to develop a heart of gratitude. And, that, and, and then that we would practice that heart of gratitude regularly, and especially this Thanksgiving. So that's the plan for this morning. Uh, let me pray first. Lord God, we do thank you for this celebration that we have today of coming together uh, in your presence uh, to read your word, to sing praises to you, uh, to sing our thanksgiving to you, and even to hear a message uh, from you uh, on the spirit of gratitude or the heart of gratitude. Lord, I pray, God, that you would give us that heart today and help us to understand some of the key things that, that allow that to happen or that fan that into flame. God, we just thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the, the, the proclamation that I want to read from a, from a national leader, you probably can't read that, so I'm going to read it to you. This is a proclamation by the President of the United States. Whereas... It is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly implore His protection and favor, whereas that's true, and whereas both houses of Congress have by their joint committee requested me to recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God, especially by affording them an opportunity peaceably to establish a form of government for their safety and happiness. So that's the whereas. Now, therefore, I do recommend and assign Thursday, the 26th day of November, so you know that must not be this year, next to be devoted by the people of these states to the service of that great and glorious being who is the beneficent author of all the good that was, that is, or that will be. That we may then all unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks. For, this ki for his kind care and protection of the people of this country previous to their becoming a nation, for the signal and manifold mercies and the favorable interpositions of his providence, which we experienced in the course and the conclusion of the late war, for the great degree of tranquility, union, and plenty, which we have since enjoyed, for the peaceable and rational manner in which we have been enabled to establish constitutions of government for our safety and happiness, and particularly the national one now lately instituted. 
for the civil and religious liberty with which we are blessed and the means we have of acquiring and diffusing useful knowledge and in general for all the great and various favors with which he has been pleased to confer on us. One more paragraph. And also that we may then unite in most humbly offering our prayers and supplications to the great Lord and ruler of nations and beseech him to pardon our national and other transgressions to enable us all, whether in public or private stations, to perform our several and relative duties properly and punctually. He had to throw punctually in there, didn't he? To render our national government a blessing to all the people by constantly being a government of wise, just, and constitutional laws discreetly and faithfully executed and obeyed. To protect and guide all sovereigns and nations, especially such as have shown kindness to us, and bless them with good government, peace, and concord. Here we go, conclusion. To promote the knowledge and practice of true religion and virtue, and the increase of science among them and us, and generally to grant unto all mankind such a degree of temporal prosperity as he alone knows best. Wow, that was a mouthful, wasn't it? <laughs> Well, thank you for letting me read that. That was a proclamation that was issued by George Washington, President of the United States from New York City, which served as the original capital on October 3rd, 1789. Right off, the, right off the bat, that was the thing that he recommended, that actually Congress recommended to him and he issued. He was recommending the observation of a day of public thanksgiving and prayer, acknowledging with grateful hearts the favor of God in the establishment of the U.S. government and its recently implemented constitution. And he went on in his proclamation to identify specific things that we should be thankful for. Why did George Washington do this? Now, this isn't going to be one of those sermons on national superiority or anything like that. But I'm going to ask you the question, why did George Washington do this? Was he trying to score points with the religious majority or minority? Was he trying to commemorate some sentimental connection with the celebration hosted by the early pilgrims, the settlers in Plymouth? Was he trying to establish an ongoing national holiday centered around eating turkey and watching football and parades? I don't think so. I think he looked at what just happened, what we just went through as a nation, the Revolutionary War, the Constitutional Convention, and he was truly thankful to God. I think that's what it was. He was truly thankful to God, and he wanted all of us to be thankful to God. <laughs> Maybe I'm just a face value kind of guy, but I think that's what George Washington was doing here. Okay, well, that was the first proclamation from the first national leader. I have a couple more to quote from. I won't read their, their whole thing. Let me read an excerpt from another historical document from a different national leader, another proclamation, if you will. This one is found in the book of Daniel, chapter 4. 
this national leader was Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And his proclamation is actually in the Bible, chapter 4 of Daniel. Isn't that wild? He was looking back on what had happened to him. (laughs) But he reacted very differently than George Washington did later. So let me just uh, break down the verse that Tony just read for us in a couple of different excerpts. So Daniel chapter 4, verse 28 through 31. Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon. Just saying that most time you see people walking on the roofs in the Bible, it's probably not a good thing. (laughs) So uh, Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king said this, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my, by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. <laughs> you hear the key word in there? <sighs> me, me, me. The glory of my majesty, uh, my mighty power. So when Nebuchadnezzar paused and took a moment to look at what had happened to him, what was accomplished through him, rather than being thankful to God, he thought of himself and how great and powerful he was. Look at me, I'm great and powerful. (laughs) Um, And he was focused on himself, certainly not on God. He attributed all the glory. You know that the hanging gardens of Babylon were one of the, what is it, seven great wonders of the ancient world? He attributed all the glory and greatness of his kingdom to his own ability and mighty power. So was he right? Was it all attributed to his greatness, his own personal greatness and mighty power? Well, you know what? God was about to show him something. (laughs) In In the next verse, verse 31, chapter 4, verse 31 of Daniel, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. How in the world was that? So did he finish speaking? Or was he actually... Just They were in his mouth, it says. Then fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. The kingdom has... So like that, boom. The kingdom departed from him. The story goes on to say that he was driven out from among men. Driven out. He dwelt with the beasts. He ate grass like an ox. And that he would remain so, and he slept outside and was wet with the dew of heaven, and and, and it would remain so until he knew that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomever he wants. Until he acknowledged that, that's what he was doing. He was driven out from men, slept outside, ate grass like an ox, was wet with the dew of heaven. And lest we feel too bad for Nebi, that's my nickname for him, lest we feel too bad for him, let's just say he had fair warning. He had fair warning. Twelve months earlier, God sent him a dream. And Daniel interpreted that dream for him 
telling him that these things would happen to him unless or until he acknowledged the Most High God rules. So Daniel advised the king to break off his sins by practicing righteousness and to break off his iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. Daniel did say that there would be a silver lining, though, because part of the dream had reference to a stump. And Daniel saw that as a silver lining, actually. The tree wouldn't be uprooted. You'll have to read it to see the whole image. He said that there would be a silver lining for the king and that his kingdom would likely be restored once he comes to his senses and realizes that there is a God and it's not him. (laughs) That there is a God and it's not him. So after all this happened to, to Nebi, he did come back to his senses and he acknowledged God. It says in verse 34 that he blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom, the kingdom of God, endures from generation to generation. It doesn't come and go. So his kingdom was restored and he wrote a proclamation. And that proclamation, word for word, is in Daniel chapter 4. Written not by Daniel, by Nebuchadnezzar. At the conclusion of his proclamation, in verse 37, he writes this. Now I, this is, this is a picture of repentance actually. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, probably thinking about himself, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. He is able to humble. Now we're talking. That's humility that leads to a heart of gratitude. Humility that leads to a heart of gratitude. And I think the lesson from Nebuchadnezzar's life for us is that we should not only acknowledge that there is a God who rules, but then when we look at what has happened to us, what we've accomplished, that we give glory to him in humility and thankfulness. You know, um, at the end of each year, uh, when we gather together, uh, whichever kids are home, uh, I'll look around and I say, what, what, what are some memories that you have for this past year? And we'll talk about what are some of your favorite memories? And, and, and so we, we talk about it. Remember, oh, when we went to Sebago Lake and we, we swam there, took the kayak out and we... Uh, watch David pull around all the guys on China Lake and throw them off the tube. Um, you know, all the different things that happened to us this year. Um, watching uh, uh, the basketball championships where... Oh, well, I won't go into all that. <laughs> uh, there was just, you know, when we look back, do we take the time to actually thank God for what happened? Or do we say like Nebi did... It was our greatness and our power, and boy, what a great time that was. I'm so glad I did that. Or do we turn to God in thankfulness? Do our words of appreciation point more to God or more to us? Something to think about, eh? Well, the Apostle Paul 
wrote about what happens to us when we don't glorify God and give thanks to Him. This is kind of a convicting passage. It's from Romans 1. And it starts off by saying, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Every breath we take is breathing air that we did not make. So anyone who recognizes that realizes that their life depends minute by minute on something that they are not providing. That must lead you to some level of humility, no matter who you are. So that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God. Listen to what it says next in Romans um, one twenty-one. They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Their thinking became futile and their hearts became darkened. So how do you develop a heart of gratitude? How do you develop a heart of gratitude? I think it starts with our thinking. It starts with humility in our thinking. How do we view ourselves and our own accomplishments? Who gets the glory? One of my favorite verses is in Philipp- I have a thousand favorite verses, by the way. Is <laughs> from Philippians chapter 2, just before it describes the humility of Christ and what he did for us. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul gave the Philippians two very useful tools to develop a heart of humility. Those tools, let me read it to you. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant or better than yourself. Count others better than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Those are two tools. One of them is that when you're thinking about people, when you're thinking about yourself, I don't know if you're like me, but I really like me. And I think I do a pretty good job at some things. And so I think about that sometimes. Yeah, I'm pretty good at that. Well, according to that verse, I should give thought to, you know what? Uh, Joe's really good at that. Matter of fact, I think he's even better on that than I am. I should tell him that. Think of others better than yourself so that when you look at others, you're not so focused on yourself and what you can do, but you're actually calling out how other people are good at things and how they're actually better at some of those things than you are. That's in the Bible. That's a tool for humility. It helps us be humble when we look around the room and we compliment somebody for something they're really good at. That's the first one. The second one is, Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's like when the big piñata comes and you hit it and all the candy goes falling. Or the egg hunt, where you're out looking for eggs. And uh, just use a couple of uh, illustrations from my family, right? And you're running out there. Do you think about like, oh, I should let so-and-so get this egg? (laughs) No way. (laughs) It's like blood, blood cutthroat or something. Uh, 
you know, um, what are the interests of other people in this particular scenario? Am I looking out for their interests? What, what is the interest of that person over there or that person over there? Am I looking out for their interests? I'm pretty sure I know what my interests are. <laughs> right? We cover the bases on those ones. But that's the second tool for humility. Count others better than yourself and look out to the interests of other people. Pretty wild, huh? A couple of tools for humility. Well, we see this quality of humility in the proclamation of the last national leader that I'm going to bring up. A king named David. King of Israel. He was king of Israel. After David expressed a desire to build God a temple, God gave David what I call a forever promise that one of his descendants, namely Jesus, would be established as king, not just for a long time, forever. <laughs> this was the promise that David got. I will establish your descendant as a king forever. That was the promise to David that the angel Gabriel quoted to Mary when he announced to her that she would give birth to Jesus. Gabriel quoted God's promise to David, and he, was, he then told her that that promise would be fulfilled by the birth of Jesus. Go look. It's in there. But in 2 Samuel 7.18, when David first received this promise, do you know how he reacted? It says in 2 Samuel 7.18, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. And he said this, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? one of the most humble statements that you can find of a national leader. Who am I that you would make this promise to me? What is my house that you would make this promise to me? This is the humility of David, an ancestor of Jesus. And of course, we know that this promise is for all of us. Jesus is for all of us. The good news of great joy, as the angel said in Bethlehem, is for all the people. You know, angels, they have three categories. There's God, there's angels, and there's people. This is for all the people. Jesus, the good news of great joy, is for all the people. So that's when, when we humbly confess our own failures and shortcomings and when we can receive Jesus as our Savior, Lord, and King. That's when he becomes available for all of us uh, to experience the good news of great joy. If you haven't come to a place of finding Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I appeal to you, I implore you to do that today, to come to him and just confess your sins and failures and, and ask him to forgive you of those and be your Savior, Lord, and King. Okay, well, David, back to David. Earlier in David's life, after he retrieved the Ark of God, which is a whole story I won't go into, and he set it up in Jerusalem under a tent, he appointed people to praise and thank God. And he provided them musical instruments to do so. And he not only provided people to do thanksgiving and provided instruments, probably there was a horn there, provided instruments to do that, 
But as the sweet psalmist of Israel, which is one of the titles he used for himself, not only the king of Israel, but he called himself the sweet psalmist of Israel, he also wrote a song of thanksgiving to God, which I guess you could say is David's kind of proclamation. That's his kind of proclamation, was singing songs. And this song of proc- or proclamation is memorialized for us in 1 Chronicles 16, verses 8 through 36. I'm not going to go, I'm just going to quote one verse from it. It's typified by verse 34, which is on your little sheet that was an insert to uh, your bulletin. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. He wrote that as a song of thanksgiving to Israel. And this brings us back to the heart of gratitude. The heart of gratitude is found, I think, in daily, minute-by-minute experiencing experience of God this way. The God from whom all good things are given to us as gifts. When we experience God on a daily basis, minute-by-minute, Trusting Him in humility and faith, that is where gratitude comes from. When you realize that there is a God, and it's not you, and it's not me, and that all good things come from Him. Whether it's in our prosperity, like Nebi, or in our pain, which some of you are going through, or in our position, whether at high or low, We experience Him as God and not ourselves as God. And when we do so, we receive everything from Him as a gift. And when we receive it as a gift, we naturally give thanks. This is the heart of gratitude. Deep humility, trust in God, and expectant faith in Him, not ourselves. And we see this gratitude time and time again in David's life, and throughout the Psalms he wrote, and some of them which he inspired other people to write. One of these um, is in Psalm 136. Psalm 136 is a really interesting psalm. It begins with this verse, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. So that he, he took that song and he put it into place in Psalm 136. And for the next 25 verses, he describes the goodness of God, counting his blessings and giving thanks to God for them one by one. Each verse, if you look at it, this is one of those psalms, each verse, after he shares a blessing, he says this, for the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And then he shares something else. And he says, for the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And then he shares something else, and he goes on for 25 verses and ends each start part with, for the, steadfa- for, the, for the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And this is the exercise I want to do with you today. What I'd like you to do right now is to grab this little sheet of paper and grab a pencil, if you can, or a pen in your pocket. Um, uh, in the, in the uh, pew, there's at least a pencil or a pen in your pocket. What I'd like you to do right now is in the next two or three minutes while Hannah plays the piano softly in the background is to identify as many things as you can which you are thankful to God for. Just write them down. And if you've ever done that exercise, just write down everything you can think of that you're thankful for. 
And I'd like to encourage you to write them down. Use a pencil or pen. So take two or three minutes to do that, and I'll close in prayer before we sing the song, Count Your Blessings. Let's pray. Lord God, you have been good and loving to us, and we want to give you the thanks. Whether we've experienced prosperity, pain, or positions of various kinds, we give you thanks. We humbly recognize that you are God of all and that we are not. We recognize our dependence upon you and give you the glory and honor and thanks. Help us to be truly grateful this Thanksgiving and every day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.